Well, good evening. So good to see you all. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to come together and fellowship around the Word of God. Amen. And it's a blessing for my wife and I to be back with you. We were, um, past couple weeks have been um, good. We celebrated, um, memorialized, had a funeral for my wife's family, uh, two, not this past weekend, the previous weekend, and that was a very fitting and wonderful end to a man and a woman who lived their life well. And so that was a blessing to be a part of that down in Costa Mesa. And then we were a week on the East Coast at a family camp in New York, as well as at a gathering of missionaries and former missionaries in um, Southern Illinois. So it's been a little bit of a whirlwind, but it's been good. It's good to be back here and to be, feel like we're single focus now. I praise the Lord for that. <laughs> let's, uh, let's bow before the Lord in prayer and commit our time in the word to him. Lord, we thank you. I'm blessed by my brothers and sisters who are here. Lord, it takes making priorities to say that we're going to spend Wednesday evening going through traffic, taking time to go to church and to be amongst brothers and sisters and to hear your word, to be challenged by it, to allow, to allow it to do its work in our life. And Lord, that's what we invite you to do this evening. Lord, we didn't come here just to socialize. We certainly didn't come here because it's the most fun thing to do. Lord, there's many things we could entertain ourselves with on a, on a Wednesday evening. But Lord, we know it's good for us. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that you would be the great minister of your word this evening. And, Lord, make this word practical uh, for us and make it something that we ruminate on and that uh, edifies us and grows us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when I was able to share with you a few Wednesdays ago, uh, the Lord just put on my heart after hearing... Uh, Pastor Brett's message a few Sundays ago, just on the gifts and the importance of the body of Christ working together. And the Lord brought me back into the book of Acts, which I love to teach, um, just going through and gleaning ministry principles, uh, principles that have kept me through the years of being in ministry. And I'm, I'm they're just simple and they're practical and the Lord just put it on my heart to, to go back to these. And so um, as I prayed about what to share uh, this evening, the Lord brought me to this wonderful passage in the book of Acts chapter 3. And so if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 3, we're going to read the first 10 verses. And as is our tradition, let's stand and read it together. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. 
So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him up by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walking, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. You can be seated. To me, um, this passage obviously is a very familiar passage to us. Uh, certainly it's something, it's a passage that we've, we remember if we've had the opportunity to have, go to Sunday school when we were kids, we remember this story being taught to us. And um, it speaks of many things. It can teach us many things, but from one perspective, it is a lesson on Christian giving. Don't worry, we're not going to make this a plea for money, (laughs) but I do want us to be reminded of how important our giving, and as we go through this, we'll, we'll see the many arenas we can give in how important giving is in the effectiveness of the church in reaching the world. You know, I started thinking about this topic and I was hearkening back to our first few years of ministry in Uganda. And maybe I shared with this story, but this passage really became important to me at that time because when we started our church there, um, we were foreigners in a very poor community. We started our church in this little tent on the shore. And I remember preaching my first few sermons. And after the service, there were lines of people ready, wanting prayer. And, you know, in my prideful heart at the time, I thought, wow, I must have done such an amazing preaching job that everyone wants prayer. But it wasn't that. It was they all needed help. And week after week, I started being burdened with the fact that I'm here to preach the gospel, but there is a physical need that is in a sense, a barrier to them hearing the words that I'm preaching. And I was overwhelmed. I was, I was exhausted because I felt I came to share good news, not to solve everyone's financial problems. You know, I guess I felt kind of like the disciples in Matthew chapter 14, seeing the multitude, realizing they had nothing to give. They told Jesus what? Send them away. (laughs) Let them go find something to eat. I think many times I wanted to scream out, you don't need school fees. You don't need food. You need Jesus. And I remember thinking, what was I to do? And we had started the church preaching through the book of John and we came into the book of Acts and I came to this passage and it was in this passage that the Lord gave me an answer, a roadmap, a biblical basis for how the church can, must, should respond when surrounded 
by tremendous need and the impact that it can have, it will have when it does. So you might ask, why is this important here in America? We're certainly not a third world country. We're certainly doing a lot better than most countries in the world. Our standard of living is much higher. But our need is nonetheless very great. It is just less visible. It's an unacknowledged need of the human heart. It is divides within the church. It divides within marriages. It divides within families, between generations, between races, between social classes. And I know many of you, this doesn't, it's not lost on you. Our country is certainly sick. It has so many needs, deep-seated, spiritually rooted needs. But we're not helpless. Though there are times when we want to throw up our hands, we are not helpless. And this is what I am encouraged by because we have the answer. It is through Jesus, through his body, the church. And you know, I've noticed that it seems that the church is so often intimidated into a paralysis of sorts by the world as the world points its dismissive finger at the church and accuses us of being a problem or being part of the problem. But the fact is that, that active Christians who are not content with simply burying our heads in the sand and pretending there is no problem or retreating to some sort of private faith that so many do, but active Christians who are living by the example of the new Testament church We are the answer, and we have to believe that. We have to know that what we possess, not in and of ourselves, but because of Christ in us, is the answer. And so this is a kind of a protracted introduction, and it brings me back to the passage that I want to study tonight. The context of chapter 3, again, reviewing if you were here two or three Wednesdays ago when I shared on Acts chapter 2, comes after the events of Pentecost, after the birth of the church and the amazing growth of the church in Acts chapter two, verse 42. And we looked at that and we saw that the church was focusing on four things. They were engaged in the teaching of the word of God. They were engaged in fellowship, breaking bread and praying. And we broke those down. What do those look like? But as the church was focused on God's word and filled with the Holy Spirit, the result was a body of believers doing what I consider to be church essentials. And as they did it, they were meeting physical needs. Physical needs were being met. Social issues were being handled. Human hearts were being transformed. The church was growing. And the world took notice and the church was relevant. Again, I often think how we spend so much time trying to figure out how do we make the church relevant in our culture and society today? There wasn't any sort of strategizing on their part. It was simply being obedient to doing the essentials. And the church was relevant and the world did take notice. Brothers and sisters, it was the answer. 
I mean, study the times, study the persecution, study the hardship that those uh, early church people went through. But Christ was the answer. It was the answer in Roman Jerusalem, and it is the answer today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, and this is one of my favorite verses, it constantly reminds me of what we hold within ourselves. He says, but we have this treasure, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. Praise the Lord. We hold this treasure, the treasure of the life that is Jesus Christ. We hold that within ourselves. And so back to Acts chapter three, immediately after that context, we find this wonderful and instructive passage that from our perspective tonight is on giving. And it illustrates many of the truths that we are talking about. The first part, I would say verses one through five, give us a picture of the kinds of needs that enter the church. And to me, they, they illustrate the picture of the need of all humanity. Let's read verse one. It says, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And I just want to stop there a second. We see here, Peter and John, the two apostles going up together and we find unity. They're not competing for greatness. They're not competing for fame, but filled with the Holy spirit. They're ministering together. They were steadfast in fellowship, ministering the word and ministering in prayer together. You know, when I look through the Bible, rarely does God call us to ministry alone. There's a tendency, I believe in modern day Christianity for lone ranger ministers. I'm just going to go do this. I'm going to go to the ends of the world. And I'm going to save the world and I'm going to do it by myself. Rarely do we find examples of that in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. We find God joins us. We, we talked about how fellowship is so important for the body and how through fellowship, God loves to minister. But it's in fellowship that God wants us to minister. I think of Moses called to build the tabernacle, but he didn't build a tabernacle. The, the Bible tells us that God lay, put, on the, put, put it on men filled with the Holy Spirit to do the task. I think of Saul, the out of favor king, but at the beginning of his reign, the Lord filled men with the Holy Spirit to help him. Same with David. And that should be our desire as well. And I just, as an aside, I look at Peter and John ministering together. And it, again, is an example of, I believe, the way that God would have us minister. And they're going to the temple at the ninth hour. Uh, again, you know that their, their day started at six. 
So six o'clock would be zero, nine would be three, 12 would be six, and three would be nine. The ninth hour, so at the typical time of worship, remember that the Christians hadn't segregated themselves. They were still worshiping at the typical place of Jewish worship, which, which was at the temple. Verse two, it says a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now let's just take a moment and notice the details given to us about this lame man, because I believe in this man. We do certainly have a picture of humanity. He had been lame from birth. It says he had been crippled for his entire life. He, he never knew how to walk. He always had to have someone care for himself always had, had, had to have someone provide for him. And, and scripture tells us that every day he was brought to the temple gate and certain people, maybe relatives or friends, brought him to the gate to beg. Though he couldn't do much, he must have looked pitiful, pitiable. People felt sorry for him and he could beg. So they brought him to the place where people would most likely give. And that was at the temple. And the Bible tells us there that he was asking for alms, asking for money from those people going into the temple. You know, many people who come to the church are like this beggar. In fact, I would say all of us were at some point or other. They're looking for God or for some power to deal with their soul. They aren't looking for Jesus to help them bear the burdens of life. They're, they're looking for a quick fix, an easy solution. Like the beggar, so many people seek the gift they think they need from the church or God, but they don't want to enter in and meet the giver himself. The giver who would deal with their eternal spiritual need and who would give them hope and peace. In a sense, they want the gift, but they don't want the giver. They're looking for the wrong thing, but in fact, they're looking in the right place. We see that the lame man, verses three through five, asked for alms. It says there, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms and, in, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. So we see the, the lame man there, like any other day, holding out his hand, asking for alms from every person that walked through the door. And he sees Peter and John, and he asks for alms. You know, it's sad that obviously this man didn't know Peter and John from anyone else. He obviously didn't know about this new church, this new movement that had started, or, or he would have asked for something far greater. Maybe he would have asked Peter to heal him or Peter. I want to believe in this Jesus that you're preaching about, but instead all he asks is for money. A few denarii seemed to be the greatest and best thing that he could have at that moment as if that would be the solution to all his problems. And you know, while certainly this is a picture, this man is a picture of humanity. 
you know, certainly we could say that humanity without God is like that crippled beggar. They don't, they have a need, but they don't, they're so badly in need that they don't even really know what it is they need to ask for. But how many of us who know the giver settle for just asking for alms? How many of us who know, who have stepped into a relationship with Jesus have settled into a relationship where we're asking for the smallest thing that God could give us. As I was thinking about this, I was remembering Ephesians chapter one. And in Ephesians chapter one, Paul gives us one of the most beautiful discourses on the riches that we have in Christ. What is available to us? And quickly, if you, you turn there, you can underline a few words in Ephesians 1. Verse 3, it says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he chose us from before the foundation of the earth. We are a chosen people. Verse 5, we are predestined to adoption as sons. We're not orphans. We're not forgotten. We're not um, a people destined for termination. We're adopted into the family of God. Verse seven, it says in him, we have redemption through the forgiveness of sins. We are, we're redeemed. Our sins have been forgiven. The weight of sin, the writing of sin that was, that was a judgment against us has been dealt with. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things. Verse 13, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. This is what we have in Christ. And as Paul opens the book of Ephesians, before getting into all the instruction of what we should do as a Christian, he tells us to first just understand what we have. Going back to this beggar, certainly we can look at the world and we can say, yep, that's the condition of humanity. They're crippled. They need help. They need someone to come along and help them. They don't even know what it is that they need. But as we go, maybe take that illustration deeper and ask ourselves, how far have I moved in to my relationship? Am I, is my asking of Jesus still for such unimportant things as God would as God would give us so much more, there is so much more that is available to us. And so in those first five verses, we kind of see the kind of people that come to the church. We see a picture of humanity. From verses four through 10, we move into how do we respond? How do we respond to the people to humanity, to the unsaved world. Verse four says, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. You know, I love this passage. It really speaks to me as a pastor because I look at Peter 
I look at John, I look at the other apostles, and they were on the cusp of something very big. I mean, just a few, uh, one page earlier, several thousands of people were coming to the Lord. We will read down through here and we'll see another few thousand would be coming to the Lord. There was a burden. There was an excitement. There was a responsibility that these men had. They had a church of over 3,000. They were teaching, visiting, administering. And I imagine it could have been very easy for Peter and John to simply walk by this man or ignore him and say, I have a congregation I need to see. I have a sermon I need to preach. To look at him in a dismissive way and say, can't you see I'm busy? Can't you see I have nothing to give you? You know, I I confess that might have been my reaction in that moment. But no, the Bible tells us in verse 4, they gave him his attention. Fixing his eyes on him, Peter said, look at us. In the midst of all the excitement, Peter stops and looks at this man who's holding out his hand asking for alms. What I see in that is compassion. Peter had compassion. It would have been much simpler to simply give the man some money and move on rather than stop and see and listen and perceive the real need of a desperate person. I can just imagine in the midst of the chatter of bustling people as they're moving their way into the temple, this man hears words that pierce through the noise to his heart, words of genuine compassion. And he looks at Peter and John expecting to receive what he thought he needed. You know, as we consider the world around us, this is something my wife and I often talk about. We see that people are busy but people desperately need compassion. And sometimes compassion is the only language that people will hear. Sometimes it is compassion that is the key that unlocks the heart of a hard heart. Are we willing to be like Peter and John and stop and give our attention and extend compassion to people who need compassion. Verses six and seven, Peter give what they have to give. Verse six says, then Peter said, silver and gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up and immediately his feet and his ankle bone, ankle bones received strength. Peter looks at him. He looks that man in his eyes and the man is returning his gaze with expectation, hope. And the first words out of Peter's mouth were silver and gold. I don't have. I'm sure that the man's countenance dropped and immediately he was probably looking, okay, who's the next person that I can ask? You know, it's interesting. I often think about this because in many countries it is assumed that if you call yourself a pastor or an apostle, if you're anointed, if you're powerful, you'll, you'll always have money and you'll walk and you'll look like you're, you'll have money. Such is the legacy of the prosperity gospel around the world. But it's interesting that 
Peter and John came out and said it straight. We don't have it. They didn't have what, what the man wanted. But then he goes on and he says, but what I do have, I give you. Wonderful words. What I do have, I give you. Peter didn't have material wealth, but he had something else. And what he had, he gave. First, let's notice what he didn't give. He didn't give the man a sermon. He didn't say to the man, you're crippled and you're looking for alms, but what you really need is Jesus. Repent, and then maybe I'll think about giving you something else. I think if Peter would have responded that way, it would have been the truth, I believe, but it probably would not have saved the man and probably would not have healed the man either. But what did Peter give? Not only did he have compassion, but he had the gift of faith through which God's grace was able to be poured out on that man. And Peter reached out and he took the man by his hand and he said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Notice that it was Peter's faith, not the lame man's faith that healed him. The lame man had no faith. Otherwise he would have gone to the temple to pray to God, to ask for healing. But it was Peter's faith, Peter's faith in Christ and love for this man that was the channel through which God poured out his grace and healed this man. Peter didn't have money, but he had the gift of faith, and that's what he gave. We all have something that we can give. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 33, which is just a page over. It talks about the apostles and it said with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. Power for witness came from a great presence of grace. Power for witness came from great grace upon them. I remember wrestling with this whole idea of understanding God's grace. What is God's grace? You know, we're given the typical Bible school answer, God's riches at Christ's expense. I think we all know that definition. But I never really understood it. That sounds like a good definition. It's, it's comfortable. It's cute. But grace is something that as a Christian, we have to understand. And it is important part. It's essential for our being effective in the life we're living in the ministry that God calls us all to do. I often think of grace as everything that God is. Grace is the goodness of God. God, the sum total of all his goodness is his grace. And we see parts of that grace. We, we receive part of that grace in simply being 
offered the gospel. We receive part of that grace in living. We receive part of that grace in our enjoyment of life. It's all part of the goodness of God. I remember in Uganda, we were hiking. We went to Murchison Falls, which is one of the largest waterfalls there. And I was sitting there watching this waterfall. And tens of thousands of, of gallons of water are pouring over the waterfall. And it's so powerful. It's, and it, it got me thinking about what God's grace looks like. Because many times there, when you take a shower, because the pressure is so low, you're standing under this little shower and it kind of trickles out and you're trying to get this little trickle of water to get your body wet enough to, to take a shower. And you get out and you think, okay, I had a shower, but it didn't really feel that good. And then watching that waterfall, it got me thinking, that's more like God's grace. It's just standing underneath a waterfall. It's just the goodness of God just being poured out upon you. When my wife and I came back from the mission field, we we always said when we leave the mission field, we're going to take a boat. And so instead of flying back, we took a boat, spent 15 days just on the open ocean. And as we're traveling across the Atlantic and day after day, all you see is ocean. And the, every day the, the captain come on, comes on board and he says, we're, you know, 20,000 feet above the seafloor. And you just realize there is a lot of water. <laughs> and it made me thought, think of God's grace. There's a hymn by a man named Trevor Francis, and you know this hymn. But I love the words of this hymn. It says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. Then the third verse says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory for it lifts me up to thee. Do we understand God's grace in our life? And is the extent of God's grace, is it enjoying a trickle shower or is it standing underneath a waterfall? Is it looking at a puddle or is it looking at an ocean? What is our understanding of the grace of God? The Bible says great grace was upon them and with great power they gave witness. If we want to be powerful, and I don't mean to make that sound bad, powerful for the Lord, great in our witness for the Lord, there needs to be an understanding and appreciation of the, of the grace of God. There needs a, to be a presence of the grace of God upon us. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 6, give us further explanation of God's grace as it relates to the giftings in our life. Romans 12, 3 says, God has dealt to each a measure of faith. And then verse six says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Let me say that again. Having gifts 
differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. Great grace was upon the apostles and Peter exercised his gift of faith according to the great grace and he healed the man. And you know, we all don't have the same gifting. We don't all have the same faith, but God's grace is upon us and manifested in one or many gifts in us. The giftings of God, the spiritual giftings of God are a manifestation of God's grace in us and upon us. And we all have a gift. We all have a gift we can use and by that be a channel of God's grace to others. Romans 12, six goes on and says, having gifts differing according to the grace, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If ministry, let us use it in our ministering. If teaching and teach he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives give liberally, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You know, other passages in scripture talk about other gifts of the spirit, administration, word of knowledge, tongues, helps, teaching. The point is, is that we can't give what we don't have. Peter didn't have money, but he had the gift of faith and great grace was upon him. You can't give what you don't have, but you can give what you do have. We all don't have the faith of Peter. We may not have the grace of the apostles upon us. We may not have the gift of healing. We may not have the financial ability to sponsor the building of a church. The point is, as a believer, don't focus on what we don't have. Give what you do have. Give according to the faith and the grace that is given to you. Faith, ministry, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, mercy, all of these are gifts that the world desperately needs and by which you can help the individual in need. And the gift that you have used in proportion to your faith will be a channel through which God's grace, which is in you, can flow. And you know, there will be those with greater faith that in a sense are greater channels of the grace of God. And there are those with lesser faith who are nonetheless still channels of God's grace. But all of these gifts exercised in the spirit of love will minister the grace of God to the desperate world that we are living in. Warren Wiersbe has a wonderful definition of ministry. He says, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. And when we look at that definition, where are we? We're not the resources. We certainly see the need. We're not to get the glory. We're, our part in that is to be the loving channel. I remember times that I've walked through a desert and, and just imagine yourself in a desert and you're walking through this desert and you're seeing wilted plants and parched trees and parched grass. And, and all of a sudden you come upon this giant reservoir holding tens of thousands of gallons of water. And there it is beautiful holding all this water. And you're so happy. You think this is the answer, 
But you know what? That all those tens of thousands of gallons of water can't do anything to solve the problems of all these parched plants unless there's some sort of conduit, some sort of pipe that will take the water to the plant. And that conduit is who we are. We can't think that we have the resources to meet the problem of humanity ourselves. But we know that the God who does have those resources. Amen? It's God. We are simply the conduit. We're the channel, the loving channel by which we can bring the grace of God to the people of the world. Lastly, and we're almost done, we look at the results back here in Acts chapter 3. It says, So he, leaping, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The result of Peter's willingness, first of all, his willingness to extend compassion, his willingness to use his gift is, number one, the man is healed. He leaps, he stands, he walks. This man met Jesus. Jesus touched him and healed him. His real physical need was met. We see that he entered the temple. He enters through the gate and he becomes a worshiper. The physical healing opened the eyes of his mind and heart to seek God for himself. And we see that the man praises God and he becomes a believer. He becomes a worshiper. We see that Jerusalem wondered. It says they were filled with wonder and amazement. Here the church became relevant again. They knew who this man was and now they see who he is healthy and praising God. And then Peter uses that opportunity to preach another sermon verses 11 through 26. And then if you drop all the way down to chapter four, verse four, it says, however, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Well, back in chapter two, it was 3,000. So we know that in the process of this, this one instance, another 2,000 people came to the Lord. So how do we conclude this? You know, this message is not some new truth some heady interpretation of a familiar passage. It's, I'm not breaking new ground. But it is an exhortation, and it's an encouragement to see the resources that we have through Jesus to be relevant in today's world. We know that there are billions of unsaved people, and we are surrounded by need. And it's easy it's easy to fall into cynicism or discouragement or throw up our hands and say, what can I do? It's too big. You know, in places like Africa, where you're there year after year, and it's easy to become cynical and overwhelmed by all the people who are always asking you for help. They've come up with a term called compassion fatigue. It's a syndrome. <laughs> and it's true. If you don't have... If you're not over there being filled daily with the spirit of God, you just grow tired of having compassion. But how should we respond? Should we ignore the need? Should we ignore humanity's need? You know, I think that's what we want to do sometimes. 
we want to pack up and move and live by ourselves in some comfortable place. Should we preach at them? Well, maybe. This is what we often do. But what is the answer? And again, I just come back to that simple phrase. You can't give what you don't have, but you can give what you do have. Simply be a channel of God's grace. You may have finances and the gift of generosity so you can give financially. Maybe you don't have wealth, but you may have the faith to pray. You may have other giftings such as exhortation or teaching or mercy or helps. What you have, give. You know, Jesus does not need our participation, but somehow that is how he has chosen to reach this world. He wants you and me to be a part of it. And resist the temptation of comparing yourself to other people. You know, one of the, I don't know if other pastors fall into the same trap, but as a pastor, you always compare yourself to other pastors. You look at guys like Billy Graham or Greg Laurie and, and you look at yourself and you're like, wow, I wish I, I wish I had his ability, his gifting, his grace. And the temptation is to try to mimic, to try to, to copy what you see other people doing in the hopes that you'll be like them. But we have to remember that it's God. It's God who has given us our giftings. And we're all different. And we've, we've talked about how we can't um, force the Holy Spirit. We can't try to be someone that we're not. It's important to be content with who we are within the body of Christ. I remember as I close, I, I remember the story of the five loaves and the two fish in Matthew 14, 16. Again, I can just picture the disciples tired at the end of the day. The people need food. They tell Jesus, send them away. And well, I love Jesus' response. He says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And then Jesus takes them through that whole illustration of taking those five loaves and those two fish and feeding the multitude. But the point is, is that Jesus took what they had and multiplied it. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. You know, you might be there and you might say, well, I don't have that gift or I can't preach or I'm not an evangelist or I don't have wealth. Bring what you have to Jesus. Bring your five loaves and two fish to Jesus because it's when we put those things in Jesus' hands that he multiplies them and he uses them to feed the multitude. Amen. Amen. 